0: Welcome to the Club of Rome podcast on the 50th anniversary of the Limits to Growth. In this episode, members of the Club of Rome, Kate Raworth, Ida Kubiszewski, Tim Jackson and Robert Constanza are joined by the Limits to Growth author Dennis Meadows, Vice President of the European Parliament Heidi Hautala and Club of Rome Co-President Sandrine Dixon-Deklev. To mark 50 years since the Limits to Growth, they discuss what has the EU learned, and where do we go
1: from here?: Welcome to the European Parliament. Uh, we have really been looking forward to this afternoon, because uh, now is uh, the day when we can look back into 1972 uh, to the limits of growth and uh, see how things have moved since then. And uh, whilst it seems that the EU is proving its strengths and in a time of crisis, yet another crisis, maybe a third one around the corner will be hitting us so if we think long term which we absolutely must do uh, the stability of the economy is slipping through the fingers of the leaders both in business and government the climate crisis is real and the planet and the people deserve better so the club of rome uh, was the one that sounded the alarm 50 years ago with the groundbreaking publication of limits to growth We did not respond quickly enough to that alarm, not at all. Some argue that we have barely responded. We are taking steps forward um, to remain with 1.5 degrees uh, of warming of the climate, including the EU's ambitious Green Deal. But how do we make sure that this is enough? The Club of Rome continues to be a thought leader and trusted advisor to world leaders. We are very privileged to hear from them today to challenge us and to inspire us. So I am now very happy to introduce the moderator of this event, Sandrine Dixon de Cleve, co-president of the Club of Rome. And um, she divides her time between lecturing, facilitating difficult conversations, and uh, advisory work for the European Commission and several advisory boards. So welcome Sandrine, please take over.
2: Thank you so much, Heidi. And it's such a pleasure for us to be here I'm here with some of the members of the Club of Rome and, of course, hopefully our keynote presentation from Dennis Meadows, one of the lead authors of the Club of Rome. As you have so indicated, we are in the midst now of what we call the three C's, COVID, climate and conflict crises. And these three C's and other tipping points were already predicted in 1972 by the lead authors of The Limits to Growth. A report to the Club of Rome, which was absolutely fundamental in a real wake-up call and also ensuring that actually environmental issues were brought to the forefront. In fact, it was after the limits to growth that Maurice Strong, when he opened up the Stockholm conference, and some of you know that last week was Stockholm plus 50, indicated that we must start to take into consideration nature and humanity's role within nature and an understanding actually already in those days of what we call the planetary boundaries. As you so rightly said, we are now coming to almost 1.2 degrees Our goal is 1.5. And so the work of the Club of Rome and the messages coming out of the limits to growth, which were not only focusing on our relationship with nature, but very clearly indicating that we needed new economic systems, that we needed to understand population growth and the way in which humanity was working within an economic and a financial system that was no longer servicing truly their needs. These messages are messages that we have continued to talk about and to bring forward in terms of policy decision-making, but we haven't gone far enough. And so what we're hoping that we can do today is showcase the importance and the urgency of the messaging of the limits to growth, to take our fingers off the snooze button of that alarm that already came out quite strongly in 1972, to create inspiration around new systems thinking and the systems thinking that many of our Club of Rome members have been undertaking. It's been their life's work, thinking through new economic and financial models that truly service people, planet and prosperity. And I would add that to that peace, as we're in the midst of a very strong conflict right on our border and to highlight the opportunities of strong policy action, but also of collective action, of radical new partnerships between the economists and the scientists and the decision makers that we have in the Club of Rome, the many NGOs, the many scientists and economists that actually are working together to try to unpack the tensions between people planet, and prosperity, but also move forward with some real solutions in terms of new economic indicators when we talk, for example, of donut economics or well-being economics. Indicators that show us that actually in this time of needing to build resilience to future shocks and stresses, we truly do need to look beyond growth. It's also wonderful to be here in the parliament because we know that next year there will be a groundbreaking conference on beyond growth, that the European Economic and Social Committee is already ready Working very hard in its report on Beyond GDP, and that the European Commission and even Ursula von der Leyen, in her State of the Union speech in 2020, indicated that we needed to co design a brand new economic and financial system of the future, that we needed to work together to develop a well being economy for Europeans. Now, clearly, through COVID and then now through the conflict, our key fear at the Club of Rome is that short-term decision making and knee jerk reactions do not enable us to put in place the resilience that's necessary, the shifts and the new paradigm thinking that we need at this time of real transformation to one, hit our 1.5 degrees, but also to ensure when we see so many people that are below the poverty line, when we see so much inequality, that we actually do develop the systems that we need that will protect people and that will enable us to live soundly within our planetary boundaries. What Aurelio Pache spoke about, and many of those members, originally the authors of The Limits to Growth, was the need to look at the human problematique, to understand the complexity of systems and how those systems interrelate, and to optimize different solutions. So I'm hopeful that today's conversation, and that's what we see it as, with MEPs here in the European Parliament at a time when actually we've just seen a very important vote on the EU taxonomy, which has actually come back to the original need to make sure that our investment decisions are truly green. At a time when the European Parliament has said that we need a strong emissions trading scheme, that we think through How does that work within a new economic system? How can we build the systems that we need in order to truly enable us to service, as I said, people, planet, prosperity and peace? So I would like to now and I need to know whether we've got Dennis Meadows online. So Dennis Meadows, unfortunately, the lead author of The Limits to Growth is not with us. Maybe I can just have one quick reflection before then I pass it to one of our economists from the Club of Rome who I'm very pleased. And then we will lead you through the other thought leaders that we have with us today. We need to know in this time of celebrating the 50th anniversary of the limits to growth as you see and you will see that the panel here is fully gender balanced that we have a wonderful vice president in the European Parliament and the president who is also female, that we have for the first time ever two female co-presidents. But one of the lead authors that we need to also commemorate and think about is the queen of systems thinking, and that is Dana Meadows. Donella Meadows, the wife of Dennis Meadows, was one of those key lead authors and who continued throughout her career to bring forward new thinking around systems approaches, but also on how we could move the bar in terms of shifting our current civilization focused on consumption away from consumption within the planetary boundaries and embrace ourselves as human beings within a broader species. And I just want to take this moment also to commemorate Dana Meadows. So I'm now going to pass to some of our wonderful economists and thought leaders that we have with us today, all members of the Club of Rome. Uh, I'd first like to introduce Kate Rayworth. Kate, thank you for being with us. Some of you, if you haven't heard about the incredible work of Kate around donut economics, clearly an opinion leader. She's a senior associate at Oxford University's Environmental Change Institute and a professor of practice at Amsterdam University of Applied Sciences. Welcome, Kate. Thank you. Next to Kate, we have Dr. Ida Kubiziewski. I always torture that name. I'm sorry, Ida. All good. She's the associate professor at Crawford School of Public Policy at the Australian National University, but also now at University College London, editor of numerous scientific resources, and author and sits on numerous steering committees and boards. Welcome, Ida. Thanks, Andreen. Next to Ida is Professor Robert Costanza, a leading ecological economist, chair of public policy, also was chair of public policy at Crawford School of Public Policy at the Australian National University, now also at UCL, former distinguished university professor of sustainability at Portland State University and founding director of the Gund Institute for Ecological Economics at the University of Vermont. And all the way to my left is Tim Jackson, who is the director of the Center for the Understanding of Sustainable Prosperity and has written also incredible works about prosperity without growth and a professor of sustainable development at the University of Surrey. He's well known for his groundbreaking work around prosperity. So let me open up. And again, apologies, WebEx has not allowed us to bring in Dennis Meadows, who originally, by the way, was supposed to be with us, but unfortunately had to go home for health reasons. So I'm going to turn to you, Bob, and I'm I'm going to ask you to tell us a little bit about why it's so important for us to wean ourselves off consumption and the addiction that we have with growth.
3: Thanks, Sandrine. And that was a very eloquent introduction, and I think you, you covered a lot of the ground that I think we're all going to be talking about. Um, Limits to Growth was the first um, global systems dynamics model, It was the first attempt really to look at the whole global system uh, in an integrated way and the dynamics of that system. I think it was really pathbreaking in that regard. Um, and I think recognizing uh, the, inter- the, the need to look at the whole system, I think, has really come full circle now, uh, that we need to look at how uh, the natural capital, social capital, uh, human capital, built capital, how they interact to produce sustainable well-being. And not, not only in the short term, but also in the long term, uh, the sustainability of that. Um, <clears throat> and recognizing that, you know, it's that system consists of humans and the rest of nature. You know, we're all in this complex integrated system together in a new, in a new geologic epic uh, that's been termed the Anthropocene. You know, so we can, it, business as usual is really no longer possible in that, that sort of context. Uh, we have to understand and manage that whole interconnected complex system. Um, The limits to growth 50 years ago I think recognized many of these problems and predicted uh, many of these problems and their predictions have actually been shown to be quite quite spot on over the the time period from 1972 when the when that uh, uh, report came out until the the present time Um, and they also knew I think many of the the solutions uh, to those problems. The things that we had would have had to change in order to get onto a different trajectory one that was sustainable desirable you know that that integrated people planet prosperity and peace as you as you were saying um, <clears throat> so so the question is why haven't we taken action more quickly exactly. than this what's been holding us back uh, you know we've recognized these problems for decades now and we've recognized and we've known the solutions really for for decades as well um, I think one of the, the ways of looking at that is that it, it's uh, it's best seen as an addiction, that there are a lot of positive short term reinforcements that keep us behaving in the ways that we all know are, are not leading to a better world. Uh, so <clears throat> the question becomes, you know, what's what's the appropriate therapy uh, for this addiction that we're that we're in? Um, and it's been shown, you know, with individuals um, that, you know, uh, Confronting addicts uh, with their problem more and more directly is not necessarily the most productive way to change behavior it 's often counterproductive uh, so um, we 've looked at you know what sort of uh, therapies do work at the individual scale and can those be sort of scaled up to the societal scale and you know the, the uh, one therapy that seems to work quite well is something called motivational interviewing, which instead of confronting addicts with their problem um, engages them in a discussion of their life goals. You know, what kind of life do they want to achieve? And once that's been established, then that can motivate the change to achieve that, that life goal. So the, the obvious uh, analogy at the societal scale is how do we as a society uh, create this, you know, our life goals, our vision of, of what we're trying to achieve. I think the sustainable development goal process is a step in that direction. Uh, But I think we need to go much further. And I think we need to engage uh, the broader public, uh, you know, all the sectors of society, all of the academic uh, disciplines. And I think that's uh, one of the other things that comes out of systems thinking is you can't address these problems from the perspective of any one discipline or any one sector. Uh, We have to learn how to co-produce and collaborate and build consensus, you know, on the kind of world that, that we all want. Uh, So there is a group now, the Wellbeing Economy Alliance. I think we're just trying to bring together all of the individuals, groups, governments uh, that are thinking along those lines and begin to to build that broad consensus uh, about what that vision is about uh, what we want. And I'm really glad that you mentioned uh, Dana Meadows, a a good colleague of mine. And I remember a talk that she gave at a conference in Costa Rica back in 1994, I think it was, And she threw out her agenda with the speech she was gonna give and instead uh, she talked about vision and she talked about the power of having a positive vision in terms of motivating uh, the kinds of changes that we want. Uh, But she also talked about the fact that that vision had to be uh, broadly shared. And so I think our challenge uh, today as a a society, as a a species really is to build, build that broader vision and communicate it with the general public and, and get people to recognize that we can build a better world, we can build a world based on well-being, rather than based on just continuing to maximize the growth of, of GDP, that continue to, to, to deplete natural resources, etc. We can build a better, better world, but I think people have to be bought into that vision. Uh, and so I'll turn it over
2: maybe to, to my, my yes. colleagues on that. and uh, yeah, Thank you, thank Bob. You. That, that really. I think that motivational entropy is so important and I mentioned the speech of the European Commission president because actually uh, she had asked for me to give her some motivational but also some deep literature and I gave her the limits to growth before she actually made that speech in the summer of 2019 and what's interesting is she mentions well-being so Ida um, unpack a little bit what that means. What does well-being look like as a new vision and can we link it? And we'll talk about that a bit more to the European Green Deal vision, which is a social and environmental vision.
0: Yeah, Um, thanks, Sandrine. And going off of what Bob said, I think it is important to look at that global scale because we're all living in one system, living on this Earth together. Um, But it's important to understand that we also have to look at multiple scales. There's the country scale, which is important. There's the community scale that's important. There's the neighborhood scale that's important. And I think by aggregating to the bigger scales that has a lot of benefits. There's comparisons, there's a global vision, but you also lose a lot of the people that are most at risk that when looking at their well-being from different aspects, you lose them out they get aggregated out so for example in australia the life satisfaction so it's the self-reported well-being subjective well-being is just above seven and yet when you look at smaller communities there are entire communities that are around life satisfaction of one or two wow. but those get aggregated out when you start Doing averages. And so I think it's important to look at the whole scale. So, yes, that seven point something is important um, as a comparison to other countries, as a national policy, but it's also important to look at those small scales. And the focus on well-being is critical. So at the end of the day, what's our global goal? What are we trying to achieve? Is the goal to make more money? Why do we need growth? growth? Growth of what? Right? So let's say we say, yes, growth is important. People will say growth is important because it helps us create a better economy, which gives jobs, which sustains people. Totally agree. There needs to be jobs, but aren't jobs and maintaining that well being and maintaining that good sort of life, isn't that the goal? So isn't growth or that money just a path towards a certain goal? And I think it's important not to confuse what the goal is versus an important part, potentially, of that goal. So if you, for example, have three cars, getting a fourth car probably doesn't add to your well-being as much as if you've been taking public transportation or walking to work can 't ever get there because you 're spending a lot of time commuting and getting that first car that helps you have more time with your family get there quicker, so I think it depends how much that dollar or euro adds to your well being and that 's the ultimate goal is that well being and i think it 's important we currently focus a lot on GDP and that 's been sort of our measure of progress in a lot of circles, not at the national level, subnational level, global level. And it's important in certain ways and in certain contexts. But it's not a good measure of progress. And it's important to remember when it was created originally. It was created after the Great Depression in the US. It was created after World War II, where a lot of Europe was in shambles. Um, and it needed that rebuilding and we needed to track how the economy was doing. We're not living in that world anymore. We're 70 years out of that world. So why are we still using the same measure as we were back then when we didn't have computers that fit you know, on our desktops? When the same kind of computer, computing power required a room or two? and we couldn't collect that data. We're so much further than that, so why are we still using all that same information? And GDP has a lot of issues. GDP, for example, considers everything positive. There's an oil spill, that go, GDP goes up. There's a war in Ukraine. For now, it's going down. Eventually, they'll have to rebuild GDP will go up. Can anybody say that, GD, that war or an oil spill are actually positive things? So, if you look at a lot of measures and track them against GDP, you see that as GDP has been going out, a lot of the other measures that try to correct GDP has leveled have leveled off, and that's a lot in due to environmental costs that are counted as positive. That's one, and two, inequality. GDP doesn't care whether one person owns all the money in the world or if it's equally distributed. It's just the same. And it leaves out a lot of really important things, too. Volunteer work, having your own garden, a parent staying home with their kids. The
2: parallel economy.
0: The the informal economy, the parallel economy. It leaves all of that out. And yet, in certain countries, it's more than 50% of the economy. It's critical and yet GDP lives out. So we need to move one step beyond that. It's not about growth, it's about what it leads to. So let's refocus, defocus the path mm-hmm. and refocus on the actual goal. And so looking at multiple scales is critical, but it's important to look at, and you kind of mentioned this, looking at the long time scale as well, um, because making a decision for tomorrow is great, but it can lead you in the wrong direction because it can be reactionary. You, you have to look at the 50, 100 years out. Society will still exist. We won't be here, but society will be. And so what are, do we make sure that our kids and our grandkids can we leave behind? We have to look. You mentioned the three Cs. I haven't, hadn't actually heard that. I really like it, but COVID, climate, and conflict. If you look at them, they're actually the same issue. Absolutely. It's the same thing. And so looking at all of this as one big system, mm. it's the same problem. Just looking from different, it's different symptoms of the same virus kind of thing. Yeah. Of the same addiction. So how do we tackle the addiction or the virus instead of trying to tackle the symptoms? So,
2: Thank you. No, I think that that's... Really helpful, Ida, and it it leads us to how then do we really start to look at that virus? What does that actually mean? Um, As you were saying, and Bob Kennedy gave his brilliant speech, obviously, in 1968, and I always repeat it, and for those of you who don't know, please Google it. Um, It is the most brilliant speech, and it shows how we have just not listened to not only the limits to growth but some of those leaders who already understood in the late 60s and the early 70s that our economy was going completely in the wrong direction that it wasn't placing a value on what was most important and now that we're in the midst of this ukrainian conflict and we're coming out slowly of covid but covid is still here we should be tapping into people's consciousness who have understood somewhere that actually, we have to come back to most, what's most essential. And so I, I want to turn now to you, Tim, because you've spoken about prosperity and Ida brought up this inequity issue. And growth for the wrong reasons does not enable prosperity across the board. So, how is it that we start to really think through that vision of well being, that understanding of what real prosperity means? In particular, when we know and we've seen now through Earth for All and all of you sat on the Transformational Economics Commission, that the wealth is going up in certain countries, well-being is going down systematically. There is a huge gap between the two.
4: Yeah, it's a, a really good question. And I'm glad you brought up that quote from Bobby Kennedy. The GDP measures neither our wit nor our courage nor neither our wisdom nor our learning, neither our passion nor our devotion to our country. It measures everything in short except that which makes life worthwhile. And it's it's a fantastic speech. And it was four years before the Club of Rome um, and, um, and, and before that report was published. And I can just see on the monitor that we've actually got Dennis here and I think we should probably maybe take a break while we hear Dennis's contribution yes, to this. And then I'll come that. back and say something about the practical measures after Thank that. You, Tim. I'd love to know from Dennis actually whether he was aware of that Kansas speech and, and what he thought about it four years before they published the Limits to Growth. What a
2: great question. Dennis, can you hear us? We've just been having a bit of a discussion around the limits to growth in your absence. And um, I know that you have a beautiful presentation for us. So why don't we allow you to go forward and then we can continue the conversation because you are the man of the hour, my friend.
5: Okay, well, thank you for that. Uh, so I'm gonna trust the technical support team to call up my first slide, which is black. And When you see that, I can start.
2: It's on. It's on from what I it understand. Is. We can't see it, but everybody else can. So you
5: go for okay. it. Okay. So. Next, uh, this should be the title for my talk: "Putting Limits to Growth into Historical Context." The um, we've
2: got we've got your I'm, title slide on on the
5: okay fine. So next, uh, this is a presentation to the to you guys. I've been waiting for this for some time. Thank you very much for the invitation. I. Uh, And thinking back on limits to growth over the last 50 years, I remember the first time that I made a presentation publicly uh, about our research. That's me standing up at the podium at the Smithsonian Institution, March 2nd, 1972. Uh, Some of you will recognize on my right, Aurelio Pache, who was the founder and the president of the Club of Rome, and others at the podium are my team, a key person, Donella, uh, co-author of the report uh, and head of the population group was uh, peeking around just uh, to my left. There you see her head sticking around on the podium. So I was terrified at this meeting. I thought everything I had to say was going to be so boring. All the ambassadors and ministers and so forth out and journalists out in the audience would be just uh, thinking it was a waste of their time. But of course... 50 years later, we see that uh, the basic ideas of limits to growth uh, still aren't accepted. Next. We created uh, over a two-year period with the support of the Club of Rome at MIT, uh, a group of 16 that I put together, uh, a simple world model which helped to understand the long-term causes and consequences of physical growth on the planet. It was designed to help a club of Rome understand the it's so-called problématique, this interconnected nest of uh, serious problems our model was very simple because you can't actually say very much about what will be invariant over a 200-year period on the globe next the uh first sector was uh population then uh Above that, to the right, uh, a very simple resource sector. We didn't even differentiate between fossil fuels and non-renewable resources, Uh, a serious problem, I think, but not one that increases. uh, Of course, coming into focus now uh, with the looming food chart. And finally, the reported on this results in three, the collected papers, and then finally, the book that was actually requested by the Club of Rome, our scientific report. Uh, The limits was a kind of an afterthought. Uh, It was for us simply an effort to explain the basic concepts. The scientific effort went into preparing the 1974 report. So of course, 50 years later, we see that the introductory text received all the attention and nobody ever really, I think, bothered to read uh, our scientific work who criticized our way to predict the future, because you can't do that in a system where humans are acting. Uh, But we did lay out a set of scenarios, different possibilities we thought might uh, occur on the planet over the next 150 years, depending on one of them uh, characterized a prosperous, equitable, more or less sustainable planet. Next slide, please. There we go. Click it again. Okay. So that shows uh, what is a, one of a family of uh, so-called sustainable futures. The uh, opposite, if people didn't take uh, their issues into a next slide, please, would be, click it again, yeah, would be one in which. <clears throat> The policies being preferred in 1972 did continue to produce growth, but finally uh, they hit limits, and then, of course, the results is very different. We didn't know which of these would occur, but by Graham Turner and others have done this, uh, suggested that uh, this so-called standard run was pretty much the one that seemed to be uh, people seemed to be following. And so now we are here at 2022, uh, in our scenarios at least, some of the major physical growth curves are starting to peak over and we're entering into really a new phase of uh, social development. So what's the difference between these two? Uh, Next slide please. For a transition to a more sustainable future, uh, we have to learn how to solve two different kinds of problems. Easy problems where, Uh, Actions now make things look good soon and then solve it later versus difficult problems where constructive action now makes things look worse before giving you better results in the future. Next slide, please. Here's a characteristic of an easy problem. You take action going from a goal on the lower left to something better in the upper right and click, next slide, or next click, please. Uh, The uh, next evaluation, say next election, uh, comes at a time when people can at least report progress. Most politicians, most economists would be proud and certainly eager to uh, to pursue this kind of uh, problem. And in fact, by and large, the thousands of easy problems that we confront are being dealt with with our current system. Uh, The problem is not the easy, but the difficult problems. Next slide. The difficult problems are uh, quite the name. Here again, we're trying to get from a low goal on the left to a high goal on the right. But there's two different modes of action. The one shown here in red gets you better at first, but then makes things worse. That's, uh, for example, trying to solve the energy crisis by subsidizing energy prices in the short term everybody thinks they're getting better off but finally uh, it stimulates demand retards innovation and you're much worse off in the long term alternatively with uh, a different kind of policy next please you could uh, make things appear worse in the short term but finally solve them in the long term climate change unfortunately has also uh, this attribute so here are some examples next slide Easy problems, uh, you know, air pollution, hunger, deforestation, litter, etc. It's not to say that it's simple to solve these, but uh, their characteristics permit us to make progress. And by and large, humanity has made progress on these problems, certainly in the rich countries, which can afford to have a somewhat longer time horizon. The difficult problems, uh, we really haven't made much progress. Pandemics, climate change, fossil fuel depletion, Uh, restructuring the social support system to deal with the declining population, migration, these are issues where our current systems simply have not yet come in to uh, meet uh, the challenges. So what are we going to have to do? Well, it's the last slide. To solve difficult problems, and this, of course, is what the Club of Rome is now uh, working to gain traction on for the future. First, we need a longer-term planning horizon. We need to look much further out in putting our costs and benefits uh, together when choosing action. And we need, and this is really crucial, we need an attractive, feasible goal for society. I think it's becoming clear that this notion, this fantasy of sustainable development where everybody gets richer and the poor catch up with the rich and uh, and we cure all of our environmental problems, it's a fantasy. We need something else that people can believe in, and but which is attractive. Degrowth, for example, uh, is dealing with the right issues, but it's presenting a negative future. It's against things, and it's, as a consequence, I think, not going to become very politically affected. I propose an alternative. Let's call it the mature society. You know, when your kid is growing up, the first few years you're happy about physical growth, but after they get to be 10, 12 years old, you want them to quit growing physically and start growing psychologically, socially, and culturally. Well, I think that's time now for the human society as a whole. Let's strive for a mature society, one that's fully grown in its prime. It won't be utopia, but it could be one that deals with many of the common problems. A nice thing about this uh, notion is that it translates well. I looked up in uh, Spanish, uh, French, Italian, and la société mature uh, is uh, something which captures uh, the meaning of this. Uh, Next, please. Next click. Thank you. Well, the, um, there's much to be done, but if we can adopt a positive image and understand we're dealing with difficult problems, I think we can make progress. Thank you.
2: Thank you so much, Dennis. And um, I truly wish that you could be here. And I, I loved your conclusion because I think we're coming to a very similar space and a very similar discussion here as well that mature society that actually reflects growth in a very different way. And I'm going to come back to you in a minute, Dennis, but I wanted to continue also with with Tim. And Tim, you threw out that very important quote of the speech from Bob Kennedy, where actually, I think there he was also talking about the elements of a mature society who place a value on what's truly important. And Jane Goodall has always told us that we are the most intelligent species, but we're not the wisest. So maybe this comes together in terms of some of what you were going to start saying around what does real prosperity mean for today's mature society? Yeah,
4: I I think that's absolutely the question, Sandrine. I I really like that that bouncing off that idea of a mature society, asking the question, you know, what is prosperity? What does prosperity mean? mean in practice and of course if you choose one thing that it means prosperity means wealth then you end up with one set of policies and one set of governments and one set of businesses and one set of investment portfolios and one set of people Mm. mindsets and if you choose something different if you choose to concentrate on something different then you could end up in a totally different place and 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 it's very interesting when you ask people what prosperity means to them very often the first thing they talk about is health Mm. (coughs) and prosperity is health is a very very different thing from prosperity as wealth Mm. and I would argue for from for Dennis that actually health at a certain point does indeed capture that idea that you move from something that's growing to something that's being mature and you want health all through that journey you want it from beginning to end you want it for your kids you want it for your old people and you don't just want it in physical terms you want mental health you want cultural health you want the health of your environment But it it gives you that metaphor of prosperity's health, gives you a very, very different starting point from prosperity's wealth, because wealth means growth. It means incentivizing business to make more profit, to invest those profits, to make greater returns, for those greater returns to make more people rich into the future. And so you end up with today's divided society, which has focused all its its policies, all its ingenuity, all its technologies on the creation of wealth. And it's sidelined, sidelined, literally undervalued, devalued, underpaid, and and put them in the periphery of society, all the people who matter in terms of prosperity as health. Mm. The carers, the care worker, the hospital, the doctor, the educator, the social care, the people who are renovating and refurbishing, the people who are maintaining, the people who are working in craftsman-like ways to create things that last over time. This is an economy which has health as its metaphor instead of wealth. But it's very, very difficult to find. If you're fixated on wealth, you're fixated on growth all the time. More is always better. But the trouble is you miss that point at which actually more doesn't become better. It becomes worse, at least for somebody and sometimes for all of us. And so actually that's the shift that has to happen. It has to happen you know, within our debates. It has to happen at the cultural level. It already is happening, I would argue, at the cultural level. It has to happen in our, in our governments Thomas Jefferson once said, to kind of finish on, an, on another quote, that the care of human health and happiness is the first and only task of government. Have our governments been doing that? They did it momentarily in the crisis when it was brought to our attention that actually, you know, without health, the rest of it really doesn't matter. But they, they've tried to go as fast as possible back to that wealth creation route. Mm and they're beginning to forget again that fundamental message. Health is about balance, it's about finding the right balance. It's not a place that you can get to by assuming that you grow and grow forever. You have to focus on the minutiae of what it means to be healthy and who is healthy and who looks after us in order that we are healthy. And that's a starting point. It's not the finishing point, but it tells you, it begins to tell you, now I don't invest so much in these clever fancy technologies that make a few entrepreneurs obscenely rich and they never share their wealth with society. Now we invest in a different place. We invest in care. We invest in the people who work in care. We invest in the technologies of care, the institutions of care. We invest in people. And, and that gives you a very, very different portfolio, not just of investment, but of policy. And I think it's the vision that, that Bob and Ida were kind of talking about. When you have that vision and it's a different vision, it gives you the energy in fact, to reform your policies, to renegotiate those policies, to, to invest differently, to create a different portfolio, to work differently. And sometimes, and I'm sure Dennis never did that, to find a careful work-life balance where we're all <laughs> not just focusing on our own productivity and output, but caring for those around us.
2: Thank you, Tim. So I'll- I, I really love the direction we're taking, we've, we've shifted from well-being to a mature society and they're all totally interrelated to prosperity for health and a healthy well-being society rather than prosperity as wealth. And now I think what we're trying to understand and I'm sure the questions and some of them are already coming through on the Slido or how do we then translate this? How do we take this down to the granular level? What does this mean in terms of Europe? What does it mean in terms of member states? What does it mean in terms of communities? And I'm gonna turn now to you, Kate, because obviously you're working at the community level and you've really nailed it in terms of the donut. I mean, I think all of us appreciate the thinking of the donut so much But coming back to Ida's really good point around the disenfranchisement of communities and the fact that we don't take into consideration that parallel economy, which should be the economy, how does the donut start to get back and then get people excited about that vision and that journey and it makes sense to them? So I wanna start by saying, I feel really humbled hearing Dennis speak
6: because i'm a little over 50 years old i was one year old when the limits to growth report was published and it's appalling that i'm now a 51 year old woman and he is still telling us the very message that was in that report and it still needs to be said i mean it's extraordinary how slow We've been, I, ca- I can't think that he and Dana Meadows and others in the team could have imagined that a baby of their day would be sitting here literally 50 years later, and this is still news, that this still is still news that we haven't acted on it. Hmm. So I just find that incredibly, uh, I mean, I, I'm, I thank him for his patient stamina to show up again and say it again, which is what we all find ourselves doing. And the question is, when does this break through and actually turn into paradigm change and action? So the concept of the donut, I I created it when I saw the planetary boundaries diagram, which had such an impact on me. Visuals, right? I think pictures matter. And and it was great that Dennis was showing us these visuals. Our eyes are pattern seekers. And even as we've been talking, what is the shape of progress? The 20th century told us it was this ever rising line that goes through the ceiling. It's exponential growth. And our, our politicians and our economists have spoken in that narrative of more, of, of, acquisition of increment Mm. and actually the shape Mm. of progress is much closer to what we know in our own bodies as health. If I like a heartbeat, right? And the donut actually looks like that. It's it's leave no one falling in the hole. Don't overshoot the limit. Health lies in balance. And if we can reconnect with what we already understand in our own bodies, which is health lies in balance of a delicately balanced complex system that is the individual human body. If we can take that metaphor and take it to the planetary body, we've given ourselves the best metaphorical chance of landing well. Mm. Mm. So when my book, Donut Economics came out, I was really struck by the number of people who came up to me and didn't just say, I like this book, they said, and I'm actually already putting this into practice in my Mm. classroom, with my students, in my community, in my town council, in my business. So we set up Donut Economics Action Lab to work with those people who want to act. And our first principle is go where the energy is. Because we can spend our lifetimes trying to move systems. And it's important we do that. And at the same time, let's start with those who are ready to start. Let's, so, so we respond to towns and cities around the world, no matter how big or small, if they come to us and say we want to put this into practice where we are, let's go. Let's do it. Because you, in your context, have judged that this is a useful tool for you. So let's go. And it, it actually brings together a lot of what people who have been talking about, Bob talking about, you know, this the motivational interviewing. What are your, li- you know, dear addict, if we're going to get you over this, let's not talk about what you're addicted to. Let's talk about what you stand for, what are your goals. So we work with towns and cities to say, what do you want to become? What is the future vision of your place that meets the needs of all people within the means of the of the living planet? What would that look like here? And we start off by creating a portrait of that place. We do it playfully i mean the fact that it's called donut economics means everybody already turns up with a smile everybody knows (laughs) it's playful you can bring your humor even as we tackle the world and you can eat donuts you can eat donuts and dumplings and and you can have fun have a laugh so we work with them to bring this into schools bring this into the community what does this transformation look like how do we move from being degenerative by design to regenerative by design i think it's really important that we name Where we've come from, let's name it so we can see it, so we can see the water we swam in. It was linear degenerative industrial systems, and we must name what we want to be. We can't just talk about moving away from the We want to become regenerative. We we have inherited divisive systems. We want distributive systems. So I'm really into finding the language and the pictures to make it simple, compelling and unforgettable and irresistible Mm. to be part of this transition. What we're finding is with the places that want to move, and I'm talking about cities like Amsterdam that have used the donut to define their policy on circularity. Cities like Barcelona, where I've just been, currently creating a city portrait to, to shape and give, give a vision and a picture to an ambition they've already got, right? It's not, it, it doesn't create it, it's an ambition they feel and they say, let's give it this um, embodiment in a vision. Cities like Brussels, Brussels mm-hmm. capital region are working with this concept. Ipo in Malaysia, um, Mexico City, El Monte in Chile. We are working with them and learning from them. How do you get started? How do you actually do this? How do you embed this and bring this in? And of course, there's a certain distance the city can go. There's a certain space they have control over, the infrastructure, the layout of the place. They can turn car lanes into bike lanes. They can introduce different kinds of city taxes. They can sometimes change the regulation on housing and protect themselves from speculative capitalism and, um, and platforms that disregard their desire to, to house their people. But of course they run into the nation mm. and the region mm. and the world. And so they are trying to be islands of transformation in an untransformed system. And there's only so far they can go. And that's why it has to connect. That's why yes. we need European level transformation. And at the same time, we always, remind these cities that are running further and faster ahead of the region in which they're embedded what you do is invaluable demonstration it is in invaluable demonstration of proof of practice that this is possible it gives peer-to-peer inspiration to other cities but i think it crucially gives peer-to-peer permission It is time. We've been waiting 50 years. My entire lifetime we've known this and sat and had reasons and lobbies not to act and not to move. And it's got worse and it's yeah. got more critical. Can we please now go? Let's watch and move with the front runners and let's take inspiration and permission from them and give them a regulatory context and give them a cultural and ambition and a visionary context in which what they are doing as frontrunners actually becomes the norm and actually ultimately becomes quickly
2: necessary and obvious. And we do this. Fantastic. And so many themes I want to build on and some of which are actually coming through the Slido. So I don't know if Dennis is still with us. Um, wonderful. Yes. Yay, Dennis, you're still here. Wonderful. I'm going to ask you and the others a quick, quick question, actually several. Um, so listen well. The first is are we still hopeful that mainstream economics can make a difference or do we totally have to scrap the current main economic system? And I think that that also in taking into consideration planetary boundaries and what you've just said, actually, Kate is so important. And why do we think they're such a hesitant from decision makers? Why is it that at the community level, we can create this excitement and yet it starts to trickle up and then it dies. Is it short-term political decision-making? Is it fear? Is it power mongering? Is it incumbents? What is it? So I'm gonna put that to all of you and Dennis, I want you to start first.
5: Let, Let me start by saying I appreciate Kate's initiative very much. I've always thought coupled with a relatively large access to resources, people with children think longer, but they have nothing to work with. And nations have phenomenal amounts of resources, but they're focused on the next election. So it's at the community level, I see the potential for real really need to adopt a different political culture, one which isn't based on uh, basically uh, fake compromises where some people give up now in order to uh, get more later. Mainstream economics will make a difference, of course. The question is whether it'll make a positive
2: difference. (laughs) That is the question. You're absolutely right.
5: um, It's a bit confusing, I think, because, of course, economists range across the board. But uh, all of them are going to be in order to us.
2: Absolutely right. So the question then to all of you, what do you think? And um, maybe I'll start with you, Tim, and then go down this way.
4: Yeah, no, I, th- I think, I think that's, that's right. But I, I don't think we should spend too much time trashing mainstream economics. I think what we should be doing, and it's the same core idea, is building the vision of what economics should be. What is an economics that's fit for purpose? What's an economics that tells us how to live within a finite planet? What's an economics that's not Hooked on growth, and we know so little about that because mainstream economics has just taken growth as its rationale, as its raison d'etre, as its central proposition. And so, actually, what I what really gives me hope about that is that all the kids who are coming to me, as a professor, asking where is this economics, where can I find this economics, and they've been doing it for for not. 50 years unfortunately Dennis but definitely for you know the last decade or so and they're beginning to ask the questions that matter what does economics look like what does our economy look like when it's not growing all the time because actually growth has been declining for 50 years and soon we're going to be living without it so we ought to learn how to live in an economy without growth and the first point of that to me it goes back to Bob's point about addiction is to understand your dependency on growth. Where does it live in society? If you link growth to people's jobs, then you're stuffed if you don't have growth. If you link growth to people's health, then you can't protect their health if you're just focusing on growth. Yeah. And so these are things that really have to be untangled and they have to be untangled by economists and they have to be untangled by young economists with lots of energy to reconstruct economics in the world that we are moving into. And, and as I say, those people are there. They are coming to me asking you know if you gave me a million euros i could construct a school of post-growth economics which phd students would fill tomorrow and and that's how keen a younger generation is to replace that dysfunctional economics with something that accords with the vision of the so so that
2: <laughs> is our goal. I make that as one of my calls as co-president of the Club of Rome that I'm going to help you raise that million um, so that we can set up a school of PhDs. It wasn't meant to be a
4: fundraiser. No, no, Sorry. Not, <laughs> I know
2: it wasn't. But, but the fact of the matter is actually, we need it.
4: Bob's the guy to teach it. So,
2: well, So we need the teachers, but we also need the place that starts to really transform things. So, Bob, what's your thinking?
3: Well, I agree with, with what, what Tim was saying. I think we need to create a new, a new economics that's fit for purpose. And we have been trying to do that for, for several decades under various terms, including ecological economics, which basically acknowledges that, you know, humans are embedded in society, which is embedded in the rest of nature, which, and that if we're going to manage that system, we have to take the whole system into account. And I think e- economics is too important to be left to economists as well. Uh, so we can't teach economics as a separate discipline that only, is only concerned with how the market functions and allocation of certain, a certain subset of scarce resources. We have to have an economics that looks at the whole system. And that's not going to be you know, economics as a, as a narrow discipline in the old, in the old format. It's going to be a transdisciplinary effort. And I think that's what ecological economics has always, has always tried to do. Yeah. Um, I, think there, I think there are some, some changes happening there, but, uh, but I think it, it has been slow. And part of it is because of, you know, mainstream economists are addicted to their paradigm. And mm-hmm. so, you know, paradigm shifts require uh, a lot, uh, enough anomalies in the system, enough, enough instances of where the model is not working uh, to, to, to cause the, the paradigm to shift. But I think that's certainly happening these days. And, uh, and hopefully there will be a tipping point where we get over that and just to make <clears throat> one other point i think it is critical that we that that new economics is based on the health of the system and not just the human system but the whole ecosystem yeah. so the so the whole planet you said you know people planet prosperity i mean it's i think that's the essential thing and that is the essence of the vision i think we need uh, yeah. to to overcome this this addiction to growth you know herman herman daly has always talked about the, the distinction between growth and development you know, yeah, growth is increasing the size of the system. Development is improving how it operates, proving its health. And and you know the analogy with, with uh, organisms. You know that and and Dennis's uh, idea about a mature society. I think that's exactly what we're we're talking about. How do we create a planet? How do we manage this planet in the Anthropocene epoch? you know in a way that recognizes that you know you can't have infinite growth on a finite planet
2: yeah, i mean absolutely that's
3: just a uh, a, a ridiculous um, notion uh, so and we don't want infinite growth you know we really that's not going to actually improve our our well-being at any at any scale.
2: No. So I'm going to interrupt you so I can go to Ida because I've been told I have to close and then we're going to go to the next session. And Ida, Mm -hmm. I want to bring in the notion of youth as well, because because Tim said we need to shift. And we already know that many young people are part of the shared economy, looking at a totally different economic paradigm, not only wanting to do a Ph.D. in it, but participating in the economy totally differently. Mm
0: Well and I think that's true is that a lot of younger people are looking at this differently because they grew up in a different world. One, they grew up with internet and computers. Um, Two, they grew up in a world that there weren't more and more resources. There was talk about there being less resources, there being restrictions. And so a lot of them look at the world a bit differently and I don't know if I'd consider myself in one of those youth categories anymore Um, but I think it is a different mentality of thinking that this is the first generation. My generation is the first generation that is not better off than their parents. Um, And with that knowledge, I know young people, some of my students. Kids of friends who graduated university, got a master's and haven't been able to find a job just because it's not there. So when university was then a guarantee almost for a good job, that's no longer true. And I think those kids are realizing it, that they can't survive in a world that was created by their parents and their grandparents and so on that we need a new system because the world has changed, but the system hasn't. Hmm. Um, And I think we need to do, I do want to mention very briefly, your second question of where the hesitancy for policymakers comes from. And I thought it was interesting, you said fear. And I think some of it is in terms of, somebody gets reelected and terms are three, four, five years, depending on country. Um, You get reelected, you get elected, And your first thought is, how do I get reelected?
2: Yeah. Rather than how do I service my And how do I service my my population?
0: And I think we also, from the population, come with this mentality that mistakes are bad. Mm. And I think we moved away from the idea that adaptive policymaker and adaptive um, policies are actually a good thing. Let's implement something, see how it works, go, you know what, I've learned, I'm changing my mind, doing it a little bit differently. I remember one of the first things I remember really clearly Obama saying, because somebody goes, oh, you're just flip-flopping, you're changing your mind. He goes, yes. I've had new information and I've changed my mind. That's a good thing, not a bad thing. thing. And yet with politicians, that's seen as a really negative thing to change your mind, even if you learn new information. So I think being able to kind of take a step back saying, I'm going to try this. I think this is the right way to go. Let's learn together and then potentially adjust. And that's okay. Yeah. So, Thank you for that, Ida.
2: I agree. That honesty is so important. Yeah. Kane, I'm going to give you the last word. So, today's an important day, right,
6: here, because today the European Commission is, is realizing it cannot backslide on what counts as green, mm-hmm. right? It's time to reject counting gas. And nuclear is green, please soon let's have a vote that says wood chip is not a sustainable form of energy. This is this is, this feels like detail, but actually it's the big picture, isn't it? Yeah. Because we set ourselves a long vision of who we want to become and then when it actually comes to it and actually comes to acting the old interests the national political industrial interests say oh let's sneak that under the bar let's push aside the science for now and let's just be convenient it's really important that parliaments like this one push back and say no we hold the line because if we don't hold the line we will never live up to the work that Dennis and others did. And we will be so ashamed of ourselves for failing in the face of knowing this for yeah. so long, yeah. for actually just following through on the decisions that matter. So it's really important that we're seeing some pushback against slipping standards today. Let's hold on our nerve, hold the line, go for the vision that this decade demands. And that I really liked Dennis's point about community. We all yeah. live in community. We all should care about, as Janine Benyus would say, we are not going to be around to care for our children's children's children. What we can do is care for the place that Mm. will care for them. Mm. And by caring for this living planet in our communities, that is the best thing we can do. So let us have the courage of our convictions and act in line with
2: what the science and these times demand. Thank you so much, Kate. So let's have the courage of our convictions. And I'm now going to call some MEPs to come around me and also Maya Gopal that actually will be coming to us. Unfortunately, she has COVID, so she will be coming also via video. I want to thank you all so much. And I want to remind us as we transition into this next moment that it is you can now leave the stage. Thank you very much. Do a little jig if you would like to as you as you depart. And and indicate to all of you who are watching us, not only do we need to have courage of our convictions, but let's make sure that we truly do make Jane Goodall proud. I I really believe that our biggest challenge is not only to show that we're an intelligent species, but to actually prove that we are wise.
0: Thanks for listening to our podcast, marking 50 years since the limits to growth. For more information, please visit clubofrome.org.